ridiculous. Welcome, friends, to Perfect Stranger Things, a weekly dance of joy for your eardrums. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, Steve and I will cover Holly Jolly. This is episode three of Stranger Things. This episode has tons of Poltergeist DNA, so check out our Poltergeist coverage over at Cocoons of Horror. Search for that wherever you search for podcasts. This week's pod has a couple direct homages to Pet Cemetery, and of course, the famous Stephen King story Pet Cemetery deals most directly with a parent's anxiety over the death of a child. So Steve and I will be covering Pet Cemetery over at Cocoons of Horror. I'll include an excerpt of that at the end of this podcast. And I think that our coverage of Pet Cemetery will give you an idea of how Steve and I really love to cover really bad movies. But before we get to Holly Jolly, let's pause for some words of wisdom from that cowboy with a heart of gold, Mr. Wilford Brimley. You got a story in here. This is the damn story you ever read. Tell you what we're going to do. We're going to sit right here and talk about it. It's the right thing to do. Which one of us is Cousin Larry and which one of us is Balky Bartokimus? Mm. Or do we just both sort of embody the spirit of both depending on our moods? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the beauty of the relationship, right? I mean, some days you wake up a little bit of Cousin Larry and, and you need someone to be the Balky in your life and vice versa, right? I mean, like, you know, how like people, when it comes to like the Myers-Briggs, like if someone might be an introvert, they might borrow from, uh, you know, extroversion to mm-hmm. sort of cope. Like, I mean, my Myers-Briggs might be a little bit more Cousin Larry, um, but that I, I would say that it's probably, uh, it's got enough... Yeah. There's enough Balky in it that I can borrow from it when needed. I feel like my persona for this podcast definitely has mm-hmm. more Balky in it than Cousin Larry. Uh, not, I don't, but I, of course, I don't want to force you into the Cousin Larry role. I don't feel like that'd be fair to you. It's fair. I mean, I guess if- I also look a little bit more like a foreigner than you do. Yeah, I mean, by <laughs> by American standards, right? Um, if we were to maybe this podcast was originating say in like armenia i would look like the foreigner perhaps <laughs> uh steve we are covering today episode three you know what these episodes just get better and better they really reward on rewatch i'm finding what do you think oh uh, yeah i i totally agree i'm actually um quite taken by you know like i, I as impressed as i was by the pilot and we talked about this how it's just does so much with you know with so many characters and in, in a in a fairly small amount of time but you don't lose any drama mm-hmm. you don't lose any humor i mean like you get so much and uh the expectation is on the rewatch i'm like okay so i think i was thinking okay yeah the, the pilot sucked me in and then and then everything else just works out but like no this actually does ramp which is really something every scene is so rich that i i'm just really loving it loving it Steve, for this episode, I've identified seven major storylines, and so I've got an eight-sided die, which means the Goocher is back in play. Oh, baby. All right, so here we go. I'm rolling it. Out the gate with a five. 
This is the uh, Eleven storyline. Eleven gets her own storyline with this episode, Steve. Okay, Elle levitates the Millennium Falcon until she gets bored with it. She plays with the Lazy Boy, the telephone, and the TV. She's traumatized by a Coke commercial and has a flashback. In her memory, she is being observed by Dr. Brenner and his other scientists as she crushes a Coke can. Elle sneaks into Nancy's room and looks at her stuff. She waits for the boys outside. Cat brings up another flashback. This time, Dr. Brenner seems to want her to kill the pet cemetery cat. <laughs> After refusing, she's carried to a dark room by two of his goons. She kills the goons with her Yoda powers. Then the boys finally show up, and she takes them to Will's house. They don't believe her that Will is hiding there. Then they all follow the sirens down to the reservoir where something that looks like Will's body is drudged up. Mike yells at her and rides off. I want to talk about the scene in Nancy's room. This is kind of goes to what we were talking about before. It's a scene that's a less than a minute long, and it tells so much of the story in that sort of almost 30 seconds. Well, think about the, the synopsis you just gave, and that is just Elle's storyline. If you told me that was the episode, I'd have been like, wow, that's that's a lot to put in one episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If this was West Wing, that would be like four episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I love. All right. So I'm just going to grab like 30 seconds out of this uh, this episode. She's in Nancy's room and she's looking around at all of Nancy's stuff. And in my mind, she's thinking... This is the life I could have had, or this is the life a normal kid would have. This is the life I never got to have, that that kind of thing. And she doesn't say a word, and at the same time, it's really humanizing her. You know, I really care about her experience. And even within that space, they're showing me photographs of Barb. So that's sort of reminding me of the larger stakes of the show at the same time. I just... We were talking about economy of space. They can do so much with just a little scene like that. Yeah, and I think the Barb thing is really important, right? Because I think it is, <laughs> rewatching this with Heather, it's like, it's so funny. It's like, how, <laughs> poor Barb. <laughs> I mean, not only is she sort of like the forgotten friend, but like, everyone's still like, what's, where's Will? Where's Will? Meanwhile, I was like, anyone seen Barb? I was like, no. Even her mom's like, I thought she was with you. It's like, well, she wasn't. It's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Let us know. All right, have her call me later. Let let us know if Will shows up. Yeah, right. Barb's Barb's mom's more concerned about Will at this point. (laughs) Uh, There's some definitely some Star Wars stuff happening here, and this is exactly the time period that Empire would have just come out, right? right? So. We've got Yoda, we've got a Yoda reference, and then, of course, we have L doing the magnificent Yoda trick, levitating the Millennium Falcon, but doing it in such a way that just completely bores her. Right. It's funny, because this scene, for whatever reason, I mean, I, I it harkened back to a, when I was a kid, I was, I'm trying to think of how old I was. I was probably maybe six, seven, something around that range, maybe a little older, and I had a neighbor who was trying to explain the notion of heaven to me. Oh, really? Yeah, so he's a little bit older. He's kind of considered a, a, a problem in the neighborhood. Probably not Crazy Shay? No. This is a different problem kid. He's a different problem kid. His name is Paul. 
Um, and he, uh, he was explaining that heaven, when we get to heaven, um, whatever you want will be there. He says, if you, if you say, Hey, I want to see ET just snap your fingers, ET will be there, which, you know, that brings up some theological uh, questions more than it does answers. And then he says, if you want a millennium Falcon, you can just have a millennium Falcon. And so I was like, this sounds amazing. So I remember going home and talking to me up, talking to my mom and being like, Hey, you know, like in my mind, even a young child, I'm like, this would be a good thing to talk about. I was talking about spiritual things with a friend. This should be exciting for my parents. Right. And I explained everything. And my mom's like, Oh, that's not how heaven works. Those things won't be there. And I'm like, Oh, well, she's like, it'll be, it'll be even better than that. I'm like, even better than that. How she's like, you get to be with Jesus and, and celebrating and worshiping him all day every day no sleep or anything i was like that's can i have the so much worse (laughs) can can jesus just like be in the millennium falcon because you you realize how much different my spiritual life would have been from that moment on if she just let me believe that i could see et in heaven (laughs) i'd be a missionary right now i actually think this was good (laughs) this is good steve (laughs) This gave you a pretty realistic idea of, of religion at a pretty early age. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm thinking your mom gets a lot of credit this, for this one. In this scenario, I man, I, I wanted E.T., so I made E.T. show up. E.T. is not in heaven on its own accord. So well, that, having does, recently rewatched E.T. Does that mean that E.T. Is, is, is not eligible because this is a human God. Having recently rewatched E.T., if I see E.T. in heaven, I'm going to start looking for other signs that maybe this is in heaven. <laughs> I just like the idea that maybe like that's how people get into heaven. You know, like that's how grace abounds is that somebody wants something to be there and just sort of snaps them into there. Right. So like, yeah, yeah. E.T. is like, boy, I'm like that version. Like E.T. is like he's like that planet's, you know, Stalin. But because I snapped him in there, grace abounds. This is the problem with pop theology, because let's say we're both in heaven together. (laughs) The odds. Oh, my God. What are they? (laughs) And let's say you really want the dune pet spider in heaven like that's what you really want more than anything well then it just becomes hell for, for someone me. else yeah yeah for me this is why your mom was right all along Man, my mom had a, she's like look it's boring for everyone forever <laughs> amen and you're like can we try buddhism mom <laughs> Basically, I was thinking that Heaven was the original trilogy. And she says, no, no, no. It's going to be just all the Senate scenes from Phantom Menace. (laughs) I'm rolling this thing. And a seven. You know what? I was hoping that we'd get a seven. I was debating about whether to include this storyline or not. It's Karen. All right. It's Karen Wheeler. This is Mike and Nancy's mom. And I was thinking... Is she in enough of this episode to include her? And I thought, you know what? I'm just really digging Karen in this episode. I'm I, I'm going to include her. Even though I knew it would probably bring in the Goocher if I did. She was worth the Goocher. <laughs> she was worth it. Karen wakes up for Nancy, who comes in late, and is obviously lying about where she was. She notices that Nancy is wearing Steve's hoodie and asks if Nancy has a new boyfriend. She tries... 
far too late to connect with Nancy and fails. Later that day, she brings a casserole to Joyce Byers and tries to connect with Joyce. But Holly follows the poltergeist lights down the hall after Joyce yells at her daughter. They both get kicked out of the Byers house. That afternoon, Nancy finally reveals that Barb has gone missing. And after dark, Mike comes home crying. Okay. I'm, for some reason, I just am really feeling for Karen in this episode. And I don't think that I would have maybe even five or six years ago. I (laughs) think that something about being the parent of a teenager has made me connect with Karen Wheeler in a way that I wouldn't have before. Think about the importance of Karen in this particular episode is she's sort of representative of the rest of the town. Yeah, she's like the one person in this story that hasn't experienced something horrific. Yes, you know? she hasn't. I mean, she's she's lost people kind of by proxy, right? Sure. But ultimately, her job, her kind of her function, especially as a mother in this kind of time frame, is to just sort of keep everything moving. Yeah, there's going to be look, you know, hey, maybe maybe your husband's on the verge of losing his job. You just you know what? It's going to get that casserole in the oven, you know, and casserole is such an important part of this as well. Like, I mean, it's such an extension of what that character is. You know, it's like it's like there's there couldn't have been a better dish to bring. It's a casserole. You got it because you know what? Look, let's just hey, you should probably eat some. Should you eat some? I bet you haven't eaten some. Um, there's so much of that that and like the idea that like no they're like we we get to we spend more time on the horrific on the supernatural on the unknown but the majority of this town is just sort of like moving along you know yeah you know we're 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 upset about will and we're you know we're on the fence about barb but we're upset about will and we're gonna continue to 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 just move along just do our thing the scene where nancy comes in late Karen plays that so well. And it's that great scene where you just get the sense that the mother's been sitting there stewing for hours, just worried and pissed off. Exactly. The the vacillation between, oh my God, I hope she's okay. And uh-huh. and then uh-huh. the oh man, if she comes home, I swear I'm gonna lose it. No, I can't, you know, be mm-hmm. I was this it, you know, the whole thing, because as a parent, you know that. And when <laughs> and when Nancy comes in. She does both. You know, immediately it's like, you were scared? I scared you. Like, she just, it just emotes immediately. And then she knows as soon as the words come out of her mouth, like, damn, I I played that wrong. This was a moment, and I I totally failed in the moment. That's exactly what it's like to be a parent of a teenager. Right. Right. And then, and then of course, the teenager's not going to give you anything. No. <laughs> no. And, and, and that's you, the beauty. What, what can you say? There's nothing you can say. But it's the beauty of this scene, too. Is like, and again, we talk about there's an authenticity to these, to these teens um, and these young kids. It's like they really do a good job of not um, overaging them to move the story along. Yeah, sure. You know, and I think that that's really, really key because we're, we're going to be viewing this narrative primarily through the eyes of hormonal children <laughs> and that's gonna cloud <laughs> everything right and and to and it's so easy for for films or for television shows to kind of lose sight of that because it's like oh it's more interesting through the kids point of view but we're gonna have to make the kids a little bit more adult to make this work also karen's like isolated she's as isolated as jonathan in this episode she's trying to connect with her daughter failing 
I don't think Ted is all that present emotionally. Ted rules. <laughs> she goes over. She goes over to Joyce's house. If there's one person that she feels like she can console or have some sort of emotional connection with, it's Joyce. Joyce is all emotions all the time. And then she gets kicked out of that house. And then, of course, she has to be the kind of home base for both Nancy and Mike at the end of this episode. But not in a way where she can actually make anything better for them. Right. Also, that's that's 70s haircut, man. Hot. <laughs> yeah, it, it's and, and that's an interesting thing, too, right? Because it's like, is that indicative of the time or is it showing that she's just a little bit behind that side of things? No, right? this was the haircut she had in high school. Yeah. And she's still rocking it because those 80s haircuts are nowhere near as good as those 70s haircuts. No, that's true. I'm rolling them. We got ourselves a one. This is the Barb and Nancy storyline. Barb wakes up in the Upside Down while Nancy is rolling around with Steve Harrington. Nancy leaves and presumably walks home. She lies to her mom about why she's late. The next day at school, she notices that Barb is absent. When she asks Tommy and Carol about Barb, they act like assholes. When she calls Barb's mom, she finds out that Barb never came home. After the camera incident with Jonathan, she picks up a photograph of Barb at the pool and leaves Steve behind at the game. Nancy returns to Steve's backyard where she sees something spooky in the woods. Finally, she tells her mom that something terrible has happened. So I I frame this as sort of a Nancy and Barb storyline. It's pretty much Nancy. Well, and this is an interesting, yeah, because this is a big turn for the character, right? I mean, Nancy's not a bad person. She's a kid, right? But there is this element of she's been she's been very focused on this relationship and how the relationship would move her forward. And so this is an episode we see that she's much more of an empath and 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 not in the right crowd, so to speak, right? Like this is where Nancy's true colors are starting to come through and she's having to fight through yeah. um, the, the veneer of what it takes to be popular or how important that is because now there's like the stakes are, are higher right and she's and so now just her 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 sympathy level is way higher i think until this point and maybe even maybe halfway even into this episode she really is a typical john hughes character you know she could easily be in 16 candles or pretty right. in pink or something like that but even I say, I think you're right. This episode is really a transition for her where she shows the sort of early stages of like detective Nancy. Right. That we'll see in later seasons. Now she doesn't know it yet, but she and Jonathan are both kind of trying to solve the same mystery in parallel at this point. Mm-hmm. And so she goes from sort of being this typical high schooler to a child who's dealing with a, a very adult problem by the end of the episode. Yeah. And there's another really like, just like, just from an aesthetics standpoint, like when she comes into class and she sees that uh, Barb's seat is empty, the, there's a really great sequence there because there's an Edgar Allan Poe poster and it says right below oh, it, nevermore. Nice. And as yeah. it pans down, as it starts to focus in and get toward, like, so Nancy sort of obscures the poster. You know that it's a Edgar Allan Poe poster, but by the time it sort of shifts to where you see the empty desk as, in the foreground, uh, it just says nevermore is mm-hmm. up at the top. It's really just a just a, a really cool little touch. I mean, it's, yeah, uh, I stuff miss like it. that. Stuff like that is Fantastic. just really, really value added. I love it. All right. I, I do want to talk about the more superficial part of, of this, though. I think that we could probably think of high school as kind of a, a socially constructed upside down. Mm. 
And here's what I mean by that. I think that in this story, you're supposed to believe that Steve Harrington is sort of at the top of the social standing and that he's really sort of above Nancy's station. Mm -hmm. And I think that they tell that story pretty well. But at any other stage of life, there's no doubt that Nancy is out of Steve's league. Right. And so it's like the high school itself is a social upside down where it's like in two years, Steve is going to be a loser and Nancy's going to be a world beater. But none of these kids know that yet. Right. <laughs> no. And that, and that and that's what I, I mean. Again, that's where I think they do a really good job of making this authentic because there is a reflective back. You go you look and see who was who was in the pecking order, where you may have sat in it and where you are now. And it's funny because like you go to a I don't think you've gone to any of our high school reunions. Um, nope. <laughs> that's, that's how involved in high school I was. Well, it's a, but it's a fascinating thing, right? Because it's amazing how, you know, what, 20 years removed, there's that. Uh, like there's still that element of like, if I run into so-and-so, mm-hmm. am I going to start getting back? Am, do we have to go back to the same roles regardless of where we are now? Yeah. Right. And it's such an amazing thing for such a small period of time in the overall mm-hmm. grand scheme of our mm-hmm. lives. But it's like the worst possible situation uh, you could be in from a uh, developmental standpoint, you know, both physically and emotionally. And we said, it's, it feels like it's like we all have to do a four year sentence as if we've all been put on an Island during (laughs) our worst times. And we're just told to figure it out and then say now, okay, you're okay. Now you're an adult and here's new trauma. And, and so, yeah, for sure. If, if Nancy and Steve were to meet in their thirties and they were in the same sort of, stations as you put it nancy's not even wasting her time with steve harrington but you know i like that because i think that there is a sense in which hopper has the standing that he does because he did go to high school in that town and i do get the sense that he was kind of popular and it could be that he could still ride ride that wave a little bit and at the same time you know he's he's not a world beater you know he's he's got problems he's He's waking up and pounding a beer as soon as he gets up, which, you know, look, I think a lot of people listening would think, hey, that's that's the life for me. I, I beat this guy. Yeah, I'm just this guy's living the dream. Sorry. I just sort of I sort of got a got a, into my own head for a second. They're like, wait a minute. Wait, I could be living in Hawkins, Indiana. Oh, man. Rolling around with the librarian. And you, yeah. Wow. <laughs> All right. I'm rolling it. We got a five. We already covered five. Got a seven. We've already covered seven. Number two. Number two is Jonathan. Jonathan wakes up to find his mother praying to light bulbs. He tries to calm her down. In the school darkroom, he develops his photographs, and a girl sees his inappropriate photos at the pool party. After school, he's confronted by Harrington and crew. His photos get passed around, and Steve breaks his camera. That night, he drives home and finds his mother running away from the house. The note that I wrote for this was the use of technology in this show is just fantastic. Um, They're using the technology to really drive the plot. Like, for instance, if he's not in the dark room and that girl doesn't see his photos, then he never has that altercation with Steve and he never sort of connects with Nancy. Uh, But, of course, that's only something that can happen, you know, pre-digital media. Right. Um, I mean, I guess people are still using dark rooms today's world but i don't know 
Does your average high school have a dark room? Probably not. Everyone's got a digital camera in their pocket. We had a dark room back at our high school. I don't think I ever went in the dark room. I went in there once, and I didn't feel like I should have been in there. <laughs> it it feels a little like a horror movie, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's... And also, who was in there? Ugh, journalism people? <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that you got along with the journalism. You were, you know, you did the morning... The morning bulletin, so yeah. I, that was that, that sort of felt a little no, journalistic no, no. to me. No, no, print is dead. <laughs> you you were rubbing it in. You're like, look, video killed all you folks. Yeah, exactly. You you guys, you know what? You you go in your little red room. <laughs> you develop your little pickies, huh? Me, I'm gonna go over here with the moving pictures, Chacha. I have. <laughs> We got talkies. I, I have a uh, actually do have a somewhat of a horror experience with a dark room because my only experience ever with a dark room was when I was a lab tech in Zimbabwe, and I would go in that room to like develop like you know X rays, and I knew that there were massive spiders that lived in there, and I also knew that I needed to get these X rays done. But I had to brave those spiders every single time I went in that room. <laughs> I, this is I know, I know this isn't coming off as if it's horrific, but well, it, spiders, <laughs> spiders are spiders, man. I'm, I'm talking about Zimbabwe spiders. Man. These are not regular spiders. <laughs> These are not Hawkins, Indiana spiders. These are not Hawkins spiders. <laughs> not unless they're coming out of that lab, bro. I was also thinking about the other technology. So, like Hopper has to use microfish. Oh man, I I made I made that note. I mean, that was important to me. Newspapers? You guys got newspapers around here? We have the New York Times, the Post, all the big ones. And organized by year and topic. You can find the corresponding microfish in the reading room. Okay, we're looking for anything on the Hawkins National Laboratory. Well, shouldn't you be looking for that missing kid? Yeah, we are. Uh, so why don't you start with the Times and we'll check out the Post. Hmm. The librarian. Have you ever had a good experience with microfish? I think it's one of the coolest ways to search something. I was just going to say, I don't think anyone's ever had a good experience with microfish. I love it. I miss really? It. You have a much different relationship to microfish than I do. So I always associate that with an assignment that I don't know how to complete. And it's probably impossible to complete. In, in other words, my experience is very much like Hopper's. It's like... You're gonna you're trying to find something here and you don't even know what you're looking for. Go so fast. <laughs> I don't I think I liked it because I felt like I wasn't having to look up stuff in books. <laughs> uh, all right. It's a little it's a little weird. Little weird. Man, I I got jazz when it was then I'm like I was like, hell yeah, Hopper. Get that microfiche. <laughs> Uh, also, the technology with the uh, the light bulbs, of course, you know. All right. It's, it's all, th- th- this episode is sort of, it's very specific, very specific to the era. And it's a very important, like, there's just a little detail, like when Joyce goes to pick up more Christmas bulbs, mm-hmm. she's also getting herself a cordless phone. Yeah. And I was thinking, I didn't, I didn't notice that the first time, but I'm thinking, like, of course you're getting a cordless phone. The upside-down electricity that fried your other two phones, uh, maybe that wouldn't have happened if you had a cordless phone. 
Right. So why not try the cordless phone? Do you do you remember the first time you got a cordless phone? I mean, I remember what it was like. I was like, oh, so I guess we're the we're the Rockefellers now. <laughs> it, really, it really did. Like you had crossed a threshold. Like, like I just... couldn't wait to call somebody and tell them where I was calling them from. And keep in mind, it wasn't like I was calling them from another town, like on a cell no, phone. You were just I was in another room. room. You you got to lay on your bed. I could yeah. I could I could poop and talk on the phone i was an early adopter it felt like that cordless phone to me felt like okay so 1985 cordless phone 1986 flying car 1987 <laughs> moon colony you know it was just like yeah, like 1990 robot presidents yeah where are they yeah it, it felt like you had stepped into the future yeah, going back with those lights too though i mean uh did you get some close encounter vibes i'll, I'll be honest I've seen Close Encounters one time in my life. I hated it. It's, I know you hate Richard Dreyfus. I've never seen it again. I've so only I, seen it once, but I mean, but the, but you know, the, I mean, the 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 music thing that I know. remember the mashed potatoes. I remember the spaceship. I remember Richard Dreyfus. I remember nothing else. See, but see, that's where I was. I mean, again, I mean, like without getting into all the details and and the any Terry Gar monologue, the the idea of communicating through almost Morse, right? I mean, it's it's. Uh, not quite like that, right? But they're using the lights kind of in the way that I, they would use the music notes would be the way that they would communicate, right? Hmm. That's what I I got those vibes. Now that you say that, I have I, this is kind of coming back to me now. And I also got we got some ET vibes. I mean, the the little girl is like almost again dressed like Gertie from uh, Oh, absolutely. Like absolutely. almost identically. Well, and then Poltergeist, that, she goes to the yeah. to the wall. There's that yeah. sort of there here type moment. Could be that we're gonna have to cover Close Encounters over at Cocoons of Horror. And I'm I'm excited at the idea of you revisiting something that I know you may hate even more on a rewatch. That is a movie that I've already been told. I've Although been... I do like mashed potatoes. <laughs> Maybe if you made mashed potatoes. I don't know if I like mashed potatoes as much as I hate Richard Dreyfus, but <laughs> I think that if you make yourself a little Close Encounters themed meal where mashed potatoes are featured prominently, maybe you would feel like it's a, a little extension of your own experience. My wife has already made it very clear that I will be watching Close Encounters by myself. This is not. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, it's not as it's not sweaty. They're in like the desert. It's like probably like, you know, it, it puts the dry and dry fist. And she's like, this movie sucks. And that was it. <laughs> So wherever you search for podcasts, Cocoons of Horror, you can look for our coverage of movies like Close Encounters. I'm rolling the dice. We have ourselves a three. Mike, Lucas, Dustin, and sometimes L. The boys are planning their adventure by discussing some supplies. Lucas has some gear from Nam. Dustin has brought mostly candy. Dustin tries to get L to levitate the Falcon like Yoda. Mike arranges to meet L after school. The boys look for optimal wrist rocket ammunition behind the school when two bullies harass them. Mike is tripped and bloodies his chin. The boys meet up with L and they bike into the woods. Mike and L discuss school bullies and whatnot. L takes them to the buyer's house to no avail. Then they follow the ambulance sirens down to the reservoir where something that looks like Will's body is pulled from the lake. Mike lashes out at L and rides off. Here's what I wrote down. Okay, I'm really interested in this final scene. And 
the reason why it interests me is that I feel like I'm more invested and I'm more disturbed by this supposed Mike and L breakup than I am about Will's fake body. Mm. I'm more affected by this, the, by the way Mike is treating L at the end of this. And I think it has something to do with Peter Gabriel. Did you, when you first watched it, did you think that it was Will's body? I don't know what I thought. Were you, but were you still more taken by the uh, Mike and L? Um... Here's the thing. I think I was confused by the Will body plot because I was sort of all, I think I was totally in on the idea that Will is hiding in the upside down. We've already seen Barb in the upside down, mm-hmm. right? And we know there's communication going on. Right. And you already know that there's sort of evil scientists that are willing to kill people. So why wouldn't they? So even if that is Will's body, Will's essence is somewhere else. But here's the thing. I mean, that's that's as possible. But even if I knew that, oh, no, they created a fake body, that itself is pretty traumatic. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, no, we're dealing with people that can create a fake body. Right. And they will try to fool a, a town to cover up whatever they're trying to cover up. But even with that, I'm still more invested in this L and Mike thing, and I blame it on Peter Gabriel. So this is Peter Gabriel's cover. Oh, it's not an actual? Of David Bowie's Heroes. Oh, that's so funny. This is fascinating. I did a little research on this. Tell me more. Um, so David David Bowie's Heroes is this sort of like anthemic, right? Like uh, it... Uh, sort of an ins- feels a little inspirational at times it's just sort of it's a big song um peter gabriel did a whole like series of covers i think it was like i forget the name of the i think it was like you scratch or i'll scratch yours and like mm-hmm. then it was supposed to be like hey i'm going to cover some of your songs then the idea is that there would be another album called and you know you scratch my back i'll scratch yours kind of thing a correlation and so he would he covered a number of of songs with the hopes that these other artists would cover his in return, ah. which is interesting because from what I read, and if it's accurate, he never discussed this with anybody first. <laughs> and I he give was, Peter, yeah. I mean, Peter, P- Peter Gabriel's a genius. I think he's a, he's a musical genius. I think he's great. And I also think he's probably a little goofy. And I think the goofiness might also be a little bit of hubris. Like, Hey, well, what an honor, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, nah, <laughs> So this particular version, from what I understand, was kind of, I don't know if it was panned is the right word, but it was not very well received because it's it was so melancholic. And that's funny because I think that if I had watched this scene and it was Bowie's voice, I'd be like, all right, when are we launching into outer space, man? Exactly. But because it was Gabriel's voice, I was thinking like, this is like a breakup song. Like, yeah. I feel like I'm breaking up with my high school sweetheart. It's Will. It's really Will. Mike. Mike? Mike what? You're supposed to help us find him alive. You said he was alive. Why did you lie to us? What's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Mike. What? Hey, come on. Don't do this, man. Mike. Mike, where are you going? Mike.
this is, I think, some of the genius of this of this choice. It's yes. So when you start thinking eighty movie, you think of if you're going to think of Gabriel, your immediate connection is probably going to be like say anything, right? You know? Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. putting Gabriel in this in this situation sort of hits that trigger, right? And yet you've got Bowie as the subtext. But you got Bowie as the subtext. You also have a song that was this cover was released like this. It's not in this time frame. Uh-huh. I think it was released much later. So it's technically a more modern song than what's happening here, but it's not like it's, this is where I think I just really was like taken by it, right? So you have so many period songs that make sense, right? Like you've got Toto, you've got Foreigner, you've got all the songs that take place during that time frame. Yeah. Sure. Then you have the score, which of course sort of lives outside of that, right? Like that's part of this narrative. It's got some elements that are retro, but ultimately we can all agree the score is happening as we're watching this, right? That That's the mm-hmm. intent. So to put in a song that is not a score and it's not, in the background to show the time frame is is kind of it's jarring and the fact that it's a cover of a song that could have been contemporary right i mean if you would put or or contemporary or at least in that you know it lived in that universe at that time uh the david bowie version that's another thing that's like okay well maybe it's not in the background but at least it's indicative of that time so it's it, no it's it's a later adaptation hmm. So it, it it feels super intentional, right? I mean, it could be that they just like, hey, we really like this particular song, how it represented this this feeling. But again, if you look, I mean, Heroes is is not lyrically, it doesn't suggest the sadness and the breakup song that that this sort of feels like, right? I mean, yeah, I will be king and you will be queen, though nothing will drive them away. We can beat them just for one day, and you can be mean and I'll drink all the time because we're lovers, and that is a fact. You know, I wish you could swim like the dolphins, like dolphins can swim, you know, on and on. Like there's so there is this sort of like triumphant sort of loving, but still this sort of building to something notion. But and Peter yet it's Gabriel, totally belied by the way Gabriel covers it because even though it's triumphant, it has this really melancholy presentation. Right. We can be heroes. We can be heroes just for one day. And interesting that's like, well, why is that? Why are those how do those lyrics even match what's going on right now? Right. And it's like, and I think that there's something about his, dare I say, upside down rendition. Yeah. Uh, of this that makes it work because you you know that this isn't the end, right? I mean. It's episode three. Uh, we know Will is somewhere else. We, but all of their feelings, everybody that's feeling right now is feeling the reality of whatever information they have at this moment. We have a different set of information. We almost have the lyrics. They have the music. Hmm. You're right. You're right that it doesn't, the lyrics are almost ironic. And yet the first line is about swimming and then you got a body being pulled out of the water. True. Yeah, and then you do have things about like the their their lines that you know like and the shame was on the other side and there's mm-hmm. there's so there are some things that definitely can make direct yeah. correlation that at least them, thematically or almost like musically aesthetically work but but huh. I like the idea of of I mean I think I just it's it's you know and I just sort of gave a very impromptu reaction but that's kind of i think how it is right i don't and i think if i were to watch that scene again i'd probably have a different one but i think that's it's really key that they chose that version and i wonder if if it was always that version right like like that mattered more than Uh the song itself you know it's interesting that you say that i think notoriously i've heard this through the grapevine so i don't know if it's true but i think notoriously bowie's estate has been really stingy with the use of his songs in Mm. film 
and Gabriel has been very, <laughs> 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 very open to his songs being used in film. And it, I, I, so I don't even know who has the ultimate rights to this particular song because, of course, it's a it's a cover. Um, but I wonder if all of this is accidental. True. Like they wanted right, the song, <laughs> and they were like, Man, "We can get, we can get Peter Gabriel's version." Rolling five, we've covered five. Seven, we covered seven. It's a goocher, and that's how this ends. Boy, I always had to end. Oh Jesus, man, that's a goocher. And now here's an excerpt of Steve and I's coverage of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. But first, let's take a break for capitalism. I think that the real payload of this movie is in, like I said, the nearness of death, but also the sense in which do parents even have, do, in general, do parents have good ways to explain death to, to children? Because I mm. think that that's always one of those things as a new parent that you're thinking, is there a good way to do this? How do we... How do we do this without freaking our children out? <laughs> how do we talk about, you know, the goldfish or how do we talk about the cat or something like that? I, and I think that if they really focused on that part of it, more of the like sort of that parental angst that sort of spurred this whole concept in the first place. Like, I'm not just afraid of death, but now that I'm a parent, I'm 10 times more afraid of death. Because I can't mm-hmm. stand the thought of losing my child. Right. That's where this movie... I mean, that, that's sort of where this movie hits home. Yeah. Or could have hit home, if it was better. Uh, was there a half-the-battle, one-to-grow-on moment in this movie? That is better. That is better. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. But he did kind of give a little caveat. Sometimes, that is better. <laughs> yeah, right. The pet cemetery is a good thing sometimes. If if it's a cat, see that's that's the reality. You can bury a cat up there because you can't make a cat more evil. Right. Right. A it's cat, negligible. The difference is negligible. Absolutely, don't put a dog. I don't would put for anything sure. Else. I would for sure put a goldfish and just see what happens. Yeah, yeah. You just keep that goldfish. Is he gonna walk? Is he gonna just be real mad in a bowl? I got him. <laughs> Uh, all right. Is this movie uh, better, worse, or Oof. properly equal to a Ron Howard movie? This is a, this is a, this is the question I've been wrestling with a lot, right? And I'm going to say uh, I'm I'm going to pay Ron Howard a compliment and say this is a Howard minus nine. <laughs> oh jeez. Oh, yeah. Geez. Uh, wow. I was not going to go that low. I just enjoyed this movie. It this was one the, of those things where it was like the tone didn't shift. It was laughably bad throughout. I kind of loved the just the B movie quality of it. I was really enjoying it. I'm going to say Howard minus two. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. I just feel like Howard has a safer floor as a, as a film. Oh, there's no doubt. And, and Howard would not. Howard would not touch this movie. But if um, he did, that would be, it would be an interesting watch. I actually, yeah, I mean, I would be more interested in a Ron Howard take on Pet Cemetery. I'm really, I'll tell you, one of the things that really made me excited about doing this podcast is because I know you're not really well versed in the horror genre. 
Right. Um, and, and I think this was going to be a really good example of what it's going to be like on this journey with you. Because, <laughs> be, because like, again, like I have a little history, right? I have history yeah. with the book. I've got history with watching the movie when it came out. I saw the theater, you know, so, um, and I really wanted to like it. So I, that, you, you know, when you're younger and you see a movie you really are excited about and, and you know it didn't settle with you very well, but you still wish it was better. So you're not quite convinced you didn't like mm-hmm. it. And that's kind of how I was with it. I'm like, no, no, that's good. And uh, I think I watched it with Heather like years later. Obviously, it would be years later because it would be weird to watch it with my future wife uh, outside of middle school. But um, <laughs> but she's just, you know, of course, just hates it. <laughs> just hates it. Um, and Is it because it, of her love of animals? No, it's because she uh, believes that her time is more valuable. <laughs> is it because this movie is really, really bad? Yeah, I think I think that would be what it is. I think it's the quality of the movie, <laughs> really, that has to be. All with. right. So while we were watching this, we were watching this separately. You were a little bit ahead of me, and you texted me and said, "For a really bad movie, this one scene always gets me every time." So what yeah. scene was that? It is the it's the, the kids going towards the truck. Ah, uh, yeah. Because it, I mean, it's it. There are elements of it where I think she she goes too far with the directing. Like you don't need to do more, but it, visually, like as that kid's making it towards the the road and that truck's barreling down. I mean that, especially as a parent. Like cause, I mean, I I watched it, but obviously, like the first time I wasn't a parent and I was still moved. But like it, you, I I couldn't help but somewhat be moved by that like and then seeing him scream in the road like mm. i i think that scene could have still been done better for sure but i think it is effective enough and that's why i think the, the the problem that i have with the film overall is like spend more time on that scene like even in silence like have him scream without sound you know like there's so much more you could do to to from there get to why he might go ahead See, and, and I feel bury like the kid. That's when you bring in the Ramones. I feel like th- <laughs> right then, as soon as the kid gets hit by the truck, that's when you do the Ramones' famous song "Pet Cemetery." And you've got on the way there. You've got a director who knows music videos. They just show up. Like <laughs> the truck. The truck is like it's a flatbed truck with the Ramones playing on the back of it. Or the truck is on its side. And they're just like playing on the side of the truck. <laughs> and the driver's sure. like trying to get out, but they're like standing on the driver door. <laughs> yeah. And Judd brings out the shovel. <laughs> it was the kind of film, it absolutely depends on the company. But I was laughing hard throughout the whole movie. But I tell you, it it's so funny when that doll just gets thrown from the attic. Because it is, he just flies at him. It's like, <laughs> it just, I mean, it just looks like someone is throwing junk from the attic at the guy. <laughs> if you'd like to hear the full podcast, you can search for Cocoons of Horror wherever you search for podcasts. <laughs>